Hello, 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 and welcome back to the Making Milestones podcast. I figured that it would be a timely thing to do to talk more about like the horse welfare movement and what I've been doing with the welfare campaign that I've helped to co-found along with other equine welfare advocates and just talk about like what my vision for like the future of horse sport is and what exactly like the overall goal is to accomplish with like the recommendations that we have and the changes that we're looking to make um just to help clarify some things like i do recognize the fact that generally speaking i'm sure the people who actually listen to my podcasts are not the ones who actually need to hear my thoughts on this and like hear an explanation to clarify where i'm coming from and clarify what my goals are um but in hopes that anyone encounters people like that i figured it might be good to have a podcast or something that you can direct them to in order to uh clarify where I actually stand because anytime I bring up horse welfare improvement or talk about the state of horse sport and stuff that I'm concerned about there's always at least a few people who are like oh so you want to like cancel all horse sports and like blah 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 this is the slippery slope to ending equestrian stuff altogether and making it illegal to ride horses and blah 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 and like I'm really just not on board with those fear-mongering tactics and I think that there is a lot of um room between improving horse sport and canceling riding altogether because that is such a far extreme and I think that when people use that to try to deflect from the need for change it's merely just a tactic to try to ignore the problem and to try to cancel any discussion of said problems rather than maintaining any type of logical ideals because it's just it's coming from a place of fear in my opinion and people are using that fear to try to make other people as fearful as them and to try to silence the discussion that makes them uncomfortable and I don't really think that has any place in an industry where we're talking about work with other sentient beings that are largely at the mercy of what we decide to do with them like horses ultimately the quality of their life and like what they're actually having to deal with is all decided by human beings. So if we don't start to have these discussions and start to seriously consider the way we go about doing things with them, they really have no protections because they can't speak up for themselves. They have no choice in how they live. The only real ways that we can start to protect them and mandate better welfare are by discussing regulation change and also just having these discussions, even if just for the educational purpose of making people aware of why there is need for change and why these discussions are happening. Because what I will say, I don't deny that the vast majority of horse people in this industry love their horses. However, I would say that a lot of times that love is misguided. They've been taught to love horses incorrectly. They've been taught that a clean spick and span stall and a fancy barn and like massage and baths and expensive grooming products are the way to show love instead of things that horses actually need, such as space to move around and interact with the environment, socialization with other horses, free choice access to forage, and those things. So the love is there, but it's being given to the horse in a way that horses aren't going to actually receive it as love and care in the way that humans intend. And the only way to fix those misconceptions is by talking about it and bringing these discussions to the forefront of people's thoughts and helping them understand why there's need for change and just how much rampant misinformation there is in the horse world because there's realistically like no quality controls. A lot of the people who are given the biggest platform to speak as an expert on horses are simply 
simply people who exist at the upper levels and are competitive in the sport and they're good riders and they're good at the sport, but it doesn't make them an expert on equine ethology and how horses actually function. It means that they're good at what they do in the sport, but that doesn't translate over to having all of the knowledge on how horses are meant to function, especially when they've also grown up in environments where they've been taught misinformation that they've then carried with them for years to come and they might not even be aware of the fact that what they're saying isn't always grounded in reality and truth but it's what they've been taught to believe because of the environment that they're in and i think something that we need to acknowledge is that the competitive industry as a whole is a little bit of an echo chamber you're going to find a lot of people who hold the same opinions and who say the same things and they're going to spread around certain types of information as if it were fact but that doesn't always mean that that's always the case. Sometimes what people perpetuate as fact is actually fiction. And what we really need to move towards as an industry in order to improve horse welfare is caring about like evidence-based practices rather than just someone with a big name behind them saying something and just saying like, this is true. We need the evidence behind it because some people can say whatever they want. And what I want to remind people of is that the horse industry is a multi-billion dollar industry. There's a lot of money to be made in it. And if you look at the products that are sold and just like how many quick fix products there are like training gadgets or different types of bits. There is definitely money in trying to sell riders the quick fix idea and trying to oversimplify horse behaviors and trying to label horses as just like bad and naughty horses so that they can then market equipment and training methods to you that promise to fix those behaviors, even if they're not going about it in an ethical way. There's a lot of money to be made. This is a very rich industry. The average person in the horse industry is probably substantially more wealthy than the average person outside of the horse industry. So we are kind of in a little bit of a box and we don't realize just how skewed the reality is here versus outside of it and in general society unless you really put the effort into learning that or unless you've lived that reality because you're part of the horse world as someone who is less privileged than the masses and can see that for what it is because of that. So anyways, I wanted to kind of go into that discussion and talk a little bit about the problems in the industry and like what I personally would like to see change and like what I think would really benefit horse welfare the most. And for like those of you who are new here, my qualifications to do so are the fact that I'm an IAABC certified equine behavior consultant. Uh, that's the International International Association for Animal Behavior Consults. Consultants, I can't talk today, wow. Um, and to do that, there's a pretty rigorous testing um, format in order to get your certification. And on top of that, it's one of the respected organizations for like animal ethics. And we have to like pledge to use Lima protocols, which are least intrusive, minimally aversive, uh, and commit to ethical training practices. Uh, so that aside, I've also done um, a lot of schooling in the equine science pro equine sciences program through Guelph University, specializing in equine behavior. And then I've done a lot of field study and case studies of my own, mentoring under all different types of equine behavior professionals and connecting with people like that, both online and in person to learn more. And then doing my own studies, keeping up to date with recent horse behavior and science studies and kind of continuing my education that way. Um, and I'm honestly prepared to be wrong. Like if the information ever turns and says that the stuff that we're finding 
to be problematic in terms of how it damages horse welfare. If they start to find heavy evidence that disproves that and says that we were wrong and that everything that is currently being criticized is actually okay, I'm open to changing at that point, but I really don't think that's going to happen because of how damning all of the evidence is in terms of how far the horse industry has to go to actually meet fair ethical standards. And what I do want to say to people who are worried about the industry being canceled is that like, I truly, truly believe that if the industry does go under and it gets banned and it loses its social license and horse sports are actually like attacked and like they try to end all horseback riding, I think that what will contribute to the likelihood of that happening the most is going to be people's stubbornness and lack of willingness to have these welfare discussions because that comes across as a lack of care to people on the outside, to people who are animal advocates that have no ties to the horse world and therefore no desire to protect it. It comes off as apathetic. It comes off as us not caring. And the more we do that, the more unsalvageable the horse world looks. So I think what will end up ending the industry is our refusal to grow with the times and make necessary changes and have these difficult conversations because all it does is reaffirm to animal advocacy groups that we aren't fixable, that we aren't teachable, that we don't want to learn and that we're committed to continuing problematic practices even as more information comes out showing their issues. I think that is what will create the movement against the horse sport the most. If we show a willingness to learn and show commitment to improving welfare practices and taking in the scientific research that there is and taking it seriously, I think it's less likely that people are going to want to call for a complete cancellation of the horse sports because they're going to see that we're actually open and willing to make needed changes for the betterment of our horses. But if we don't do that, it'll give the perception that we don't care about horses and that we value the sport way more than the welfare of the horses because we're denying information that would allow us to treat our horses better. And that's what I think we'll call it the end of the horse world. Like I've had so many people approach me that are like, oh, people like you are going to be what tanks the industry. And it's like, no, people like me are desperately trying to pick up the pieces to save the industry because we are going to tank it on our own if we refuse to make needed changes. And that's something that I firmly, firmly believe, whether or not people agree with that. Like, in my experience interacting with animal advocacy types, their biggest grievance is the lack of care that horse people show and how many people refuse and deny science. And if that were to start changing, I think even people who are really, really, like, I guess, extremist in their views would be more open to kind of shifting a little closer to being like, okay, this isn't as completely bad as I thought. But we have to give them incentive to actually feel that way first. And currently on a global scale, there isn't that incentive. Because unfortunately, the most publicized horse events are typically the ones that depict the most problematic practices. And that shows to other people who don't actually immerse themselves in equestrian culture, that looks like everyone is guilty of that. The next thing that I do do want to say is that I find a lot of people deflect from welfare discussion to be like, oh, well, like my horse isn't stressed, my horse is happy, my horse isn't in pain, and they'll list off all of the things that they're doing for their horse to ensure these things, which is great. That's fantastic you're doing that for your horse. But what I want to remind people is that what you're doing for your horse is not a statement on the industry as a whole. You could be an outlier. You could be going above and beyond for your horse, but that doesn't cancel out the fact that there's need for change in the industry. And it is not a personal attack on you for people to discuss that needed change just because you're not someone who needs to make all of that same amount of change. And I think we really need to sway away from trying to do 
defenses that serve to only protect ourselves because we feel attacked because that comes at the expense of horses who really do need our help even if your horses are not one of them there's lots of horses who are in less than ideal living and training circumstances that need our voices so if we start to become so obsessed with our own egos that we try to silence discussion that could be helpful to other horses simply because it's not applicable to us we're hurting other horses and if the discussion pertaining to need for welfare improvement is not applicable to you because you've already made those improvements or have always done that, then you shouldn't take it personally because it's not directed at people like you. It's directed at people who need to make changes. So the defensiveness really needs to stop because it's not going to get us anywhere and it just makes our industry look bad and resistant to change. And we cannot be so obsessed with defending ourselves that we don't have these needed discussions because they really truly do need to happen and it's within our power to make big sweeping change that would honestly improve the safety of riders everywhere and the welfare of horses exponentially so that's kind of my rant for that um the next thing that I wanted to discuss is that like I do think that horse competition can be done in a substantially more ethical way what I will say is that I think for certain horse sports that in order to truly have it be like the best ethical standard it could be, that we might need to change how we view those sports to function. Uh, like, for example, with like upper level eventing, people like the really big solid jumps. But if we're seeing a lot of avoidable accidents happen over these jumps, then maybe we should kind of change the vision of what we've normalized and alter them to be safer for the horses, even if it's not as impressive for the people to watch. Because again, like this isn't about us and what we enjoy watching. And if we make it about that, then the message that that sends is that the entertainment portion of the sport comes above horse welfare. Um, like recently at a five-star event, there was a horse, I think it's Tammy Smith's horse, who hit her knee on a solid fence coming out of the open water, um, or not open water, it's not show jumping, through the water combination. And I think she jumped one or two more fences before pulling her up, but I guess like the knee had like a puncture in injury and the horse had a slab fracture in her knee and she ended up needing to be euthanized because it wasn't fixable in surgery. And like people will look at stuff like that and they go, oh, that's just like a freak accident. But, like, a freak accident shouldn't be occurring on, like, a yearly basis, and it's a yearly basis that we're hearing accidents where horses are needing to be euthanized on course in cross-country. Um, and compared to the racing industry, eventing is a lot smaller, so the amount of deaths that would need to happen in upper-level eventing to be, like, as high or higher than the racing industry is a lot fewer because there's fewer horses competing. It's a very small industry in comparison, and this is not me defending the racing industry. We'll get there because they have their own issues, but... We can't really call these things freak accidents if they're avoidable, if we were to change the types of jumps or like make the combinations less confusing and less difficult for the horses to avoid these types of accidents. It's not a freak accident if we continue committing to maintaining a way of building courses that makes those accidents far more likely to happen. That's a choice on our part as humans that creates the exact environment for these things to happen. And again, I'm not criticizing Tammy Smith here. I'm not looking to like lay blame anywhere. I'm just saying that this is a conversation that we need to have because I think people have become so desensitized to these types of things happening that they just like shrug it off as like, oh, it's a freak accident. It's not very likely to happen. But they don't consider like how hard that must have been for the horse. Like to 
fracture your knee and like puncture it and then jump another big five-star level cross-country fence after like I yes there's adrenaline which would help lower the amount of pain the horse would feel but like just try to put yourself in that position as the animal without having any context context as to why you're being asked to do what you're doing and being in that situation where you're scared, you're in pain. And then also on top of that, having the last few moments of life being in a veterinary clinic, which is stressful, even no matter how great the staff is, it's not a, it's not a great place for a horse to be. So the last moments of that horse's life wouldn't have been particularly pleasant. And if we could make changes to make that type of thing far less likely to occur to the point where it actually is a freak accident because it happens so, so infrequently, then I think we should, because also, like, what I want to point out is that even when horses don't die, like, there's a fair amount of accidents that repeatedly occur across all horse sports that permanently damage horses to the point where they are permanently lame or where their ability to engage in athletic sport or even, like, enjoy themselves in the field is severely compromised. Like, the amount that we normalize things like joint injections with corticosteroids, it's, it's too often. We, we have, we've accepted a certain standard for lameness in horses that we've shrugged off as normal rather than looking at, like, could we reduce the occurrence of this? Like, could we reduce the occurrence of horses developing arthritis and needing routine injections to stay sound? Is it really ethical to continue competing a horse who has severe arthritis and is only sound if they get routine injections to mask the pain and to reduce inflammation? I'm not saying that injections are inherently bad because, but there's, there's a difference between injecting your horse so that they can enjoy a comfortable pasture life or like light hacking and injecting your horse to continue competing at the pinnacle of the sport when their joints are showing wear and tear that is undoubtedly going to be made worse from maintaining that level of competition because it's so strenuous. And these are things that I think we really need to consider. It's like, if it is, if the sport is truly about the love of the horse, there's a lot of stuff that goes on on a really regular basis that isn't justifiable if the love of the horse actually comes first. And I think that if we're being honest with ourselves, while the vast majority of equestrians, if not all of them, love their horses, I think that a lot of them deep down love the sport more because of what they are willing to justify in order to stay in the sport. Because when you choose to continue competing a horse that has significant bony changes in their joints and you use a steroid injection to make them sound for the competition, you're doing so for your own pleasure at the expense of the horse's happy retirement and comfortable movement at a later date because it is going to cause more wear and tear for them to compete at that level versus doing something less strenuous. And these are decisions that we really need to look at, like what is motivating them, because in that instance, there is no argument to say that that's in the horse's best interest. People will claim that, like, these horses love their jobs and that they're, like, high-level athletes and that they would be sad if they didn't compete. But, like, honestly, I, I refuse to believe that because, like, a lot of the behaviors that people use to say that the horse needs to stay in work are related to the horse having inadequate management. Like, for example, like, oh, my upper-level show horse or race horse gets antsy when they're not in a full work program. But then you go and you look at a lot of these horses' living situations, and they're living in, like, a stall paddock situation completely by themselves in mostly barren turnout locations that don't have very much to do, or they've lived a life where they've been so deprived of space that then when you try to put them in that situation, it feels stressful and scary 
scary to them and then they're overstimulated and they respond accordingly. Those behaviors aren't actually related to not being in work. The work just provides an outlet for that energy that's not being properly utilized. And horses who are in work are also less likely to have the same access to that level of turnout that may incite those behaviors. So people like to try to make justifications for why these behaviors exist that are more favorable to what they want to do with the horse, whether or not they are actually true. And again, this is not being said as an attack because I literally used to do the same thing to try to justify like why I kept my show horses the way I did. But like now that I can look back on it honestly and look at my actions, like it was for me to save face and to try to justify things for my own benefit. It wasn't actually for what was with the, for the horse's own benefit. And what I will say is that I do believe during that time, like, I think I believed what I was saying. And I think that a lot of the people making these excuses do believe what they're saying, but it comes from a lack of education or like a misdirection of education where they're mislabeling their horse's behavior and viewing it as like some unfixable thing or viewing it as something that can only be fixed by a singular solution, which is keeping their horse in a full work program and competing them at an upper level rather than looking at it as like, okay, we could counter condition this behavior and work on this level of anxiety so that this horse can live a happy, enjoyable, life in turnout with a herd and we can adapt these maladaptive behaviors that they've developed to try to handle the level of stress that they are under. We can change these and we could look at those behaviors and go, this is abnormal instead of just going, this is the way my horse is. This is the way upper level competition horses are. Because what I will say is like, we see a lot of similar behaviors in horses who are very high-end and expensive horses who are doing like very strenuous sports but I don't think it's because of the level that they compete at I think it's because of their shared traumas and their shared stressors a lot of them do not get enough species appropriate care and they develop behaviors to try to cope with the stress because of that a lot of them are engaging in stressful training practices and they develop behaviors to cope with the stress because of that it's not because of the type of horse they are. It's because of the shared lifestyle and the similarities that these horses all have across the board, which is why a lot of these horses who end up in homes where their needs do get met at a later date can adapt really nicely to those types of situations and settle down. Or why the upper level horses who exist in homes where their upper level riders have them turned out and in group turnout behave differently. There's a reason for that. It's not like we use these like status-based things that are all in our heads as humans to try to justify horse behavior and it's anthropomorphic and it only serves to cause harm to the horses. So I really do think we need to reflect on what we view as normal because like just speaking from experience, like I, I've been probably present for more vet checks than the average bear because of how many like commission sales and stuff I've done for horses that are not mine as well as like my own horses, but mostly horses that are not mine. And like, honestly, how uncommon it is to have a horse who has been used in like a fairly strenuous level of sport to actually vet without any arthritic changes or bone chips or OCD lesions. And yes, OCD lesions can be genetic. It's not always related to like what they're doing sport wise, but you know what I mean? Like different types of anomalies in their bodies, many of which are directly related to the wear and tear put on their bodies from competition. Like I can count on one hand, I think, the number of, like, racehorses that I've sat with the vetting for that haven't had anything. And for some of them, it's like, if you looked hard enough, you would probably find something. And yes, certain types of anomalies can exist due to genetics or just the horse being the way that they are. But the number of horses that I saw with chips and arthritis on the racetrack is related to 
their careers and the way that we've chosen to go about those things. And until we actually look further into the research and actually really try to zero in on how preventable these types of injuries are and what factors exactly would lower the risk of them. I don't think we should just shrug it off as like, oh, a fluke. Like we need to look further into these things and we need to care about the frequency of lameness that we're seeing or the frequency, even if the horse isn't lame, the frequency of problems that we're seeing in vet checks and question how preventable those things are. Because, like, sure, maybe if we look further into it, it's not preventable, and maybe these horses are all just flukes. But I think that if we seriously actually tried to isolate what the factors are that make these types of injuries more likely, we would come out finding out ways to adapt the sport to serve the soundness of the horse longer term more effectively. Because it is not normal to have horses that are, like, less than 10 years old that have all of these problems and will need maintenance for years to come. And it's so common to see horses being bought and sold like this. And it's also very common for horses to be highly discardable if they end up coming up with an issue that really makes them less, I guess desirable to competition homes where people will have a horse that sustains a career-ending injury and then they're trying to give it away for free instead of doing the retirement themselves. And again, this is not an attack on people who do this because it's so normalized. And I don't think it comes from a place of ill intent in most cases. But when you choose to do that, there's really no way around the fact that if the bond that you have with these horses and your enjoyment of the horse becomes completely severed to the point where you no longer want the horse, even when they're at a point in their life where they're less likely to find a long-term home and where they're less desirable and more at risk because they're not sound. If you want to sell them so that you can get another horse who is usable in sport, the decision is pretty clearly about the love of the sport rather than the love of the horse because if it was about the love of the horse, the inability to use the horse for your desired sport shouldn't really change how much you, how, how you feel about them to that degree. And when we're talking about, like, animals and, like, what's fair to them, like, I, I, I really do think we need to normalize, like, humane euthanasia more because, like, putting horses who are young and, like, completely broken at risk of either being drugged and continued to be worked until they break down or being passed through home to home to home before they, like, end up at an auction or in a bad situation, I don't think that's a kindness. And, we look at death really oddly as people because most of us fear death, but like horses don't have the same concept unless they feel like imminently in danger. And there is such thing as giving a horse a good death. And I think that ensuring their safety long term and making a decision that makes it so that they're not likely to end up in a very poor situation. If you're not willing to guarantee the horse's future yourself, I do think that's a decision more people should consider. Um, with that said, though, I think that the biggest thing is to try to prevent the degree of, like, lameness and injury that we're seeing in competition horses because it's far, far too common. Like, it does not need to happen this way. And it really doesn't need to be this way. Like, like honestly, like, even with, like, George, um, who I put down a few years ago now, like, he had two slab fractures on his hind end, like, both hind legs and the ankles, um, and then a chip in one of the fronts. And, like, that's not a normal lever level of injury. Like, maybe genetically he was more predisposed to that severity of injury due to being less resilient um, bone-wise, but it is a byproduct of the way we choose to use these horses and the, like the level of stress that they're under. And like, if we can't have the desire to try to explore further how we can prevent these things and what exactly is contributing to their prevalence, we can't really make changes. And like, what I find is a lot of people in the industry just want to shrug off these problems and pretend that they're less 
frequent and prevalent than they are when that's not the case like and it's not just like racing it's not just like eventing it's like show jumping and dressage too like it's very common to see horses sustaining significant injuries and needing lots of maintenance when they're relatively young and I think it has to do with the fact like that like our demands as people and how quickly we want to bring these horses up and like how we take shortcuts in training with like certain types of training gadgets or harsher bits and we don't properly condition horses because we just want to get to the next um the the next thing quicker. And I think that the other factor is that a lot of horses are living in chronic stress and chronic stress is an expensive toll on the body and I'm sure that predisposes them to a lot of health issues, including injury. And if we started to adapt even just that, I think it would reduce the risk of injury to at least some extent. And then the other aspects would be how we condition them and what the demands of the sports actually are. But these are things that we need to care more to look into. And like, I wish I was made of money because then I would just start conducting my own experiments and offering to pay to like x-ray people's horses for free just so that I could use the data to really explore this so that I could prove what my hypothesis is but it's so expensive to do and like I don't think I'm going to be at the point to do that anytime soon and it's also really hard to find I guess investors or like businesses or companies that want to put the money into doing this and can actually secure the funding because I know there's a lot of like equine scientists and stuff who would probably want to do these studies but securing the funding is really hard because a lot of the people with the most money are directly involved in the sport and people who are directly involved in horse sport and profiting from it aren't really going to want to put their money into researching things that could serve to dismantle the sport as it is currently and demand for necessary change and potentially discover damning evidence. Like, they don't want to put the money into that. So it's really hard. Like, we have all this stuff that could, in theory, be proved if the interest in proving it was there and if the money to do so was also there. But it's really hard to get that together. And the lack of desire to put the money into researching these things and the lack of desire to share these types of studies even when there are things that are researched that paint the sport in a bad light, that all feeds into a problem where we're not actually getting honest information and like the lack of available information doesn't necessarily mean that what we're doing is right. Like for example, there's been a few studies on like upper level sport horses and like horses in elite horse sports. So these are horses that are at like the pinnacle of the sport and like the one that they did on dressage horses. Yes, it's a smaller study, but like honestly, like the degree of occurrence of stress behaviors in this study, even though it's like a smaller sample size, is enough that we really need to kind of reflect and go like, first of all, we should want to get a way larger sample size study based off of these findings. And secondly, we shouldn't just shrug them off due to the small sample size, especially if we're not willing to do further research, because that just shows that we're not interested in actually finding out just how true the findings are. Anyways, the study was on conflict behaviors, which are behaviors that are directly related to stress. And in elite dressage horses, they found that like 98.5% of movements had at least four or more conflict behaviors in them. 98.5 in all of the horses that they studied. That means only 0.1% of movements either did not have conflict behaviors or had less. And that level of occurrence is something that, one, deserves further research, and two, shouldn't just be shrugged off and ignored by so much of the industry. But people don't even want to look at or consider these studies because they make them uncomfortable. But, like, there's a reason for that discomfort, and it's because deep down we probably know that there's something wrong and we're scared of what further research might uncover. 
They also did studies on show jumping horses for the same study, and I think that the occurrence of conflict behaviors in show jumpers was like 89%, and they showed like, I think maybe two, but like, they thought that show jumping horses perhaps showed less conflict behaviors because they didn't have to be so controlled and like sustained and like, um, their self-care or like not not self-carriage but like how they're supposed to go like show jumpers can be more expressive it's not gonna dock you points if your horse like bucks or like throws their head or whatever so they have more freedom to like explore different outlets for stress and have more self-expression and perhaps that is what reduces the occurrence of conflict behaviors in them but like either way like both disciplines showed a high instance of conflict behaviors that should be further looked into rather than just shrugged off. And, like, a lot of people don't want to look into these things because it's uncomfortable and it serves to change how you feel about a sport that you love. And I get that because once you start to kind of go down that rabbit hole, there's not really any coming back from it unless you just decide to ignore all the information and shrug it off, which if you truly, really love horses, it's really hard to do, even if you try to deny it initially and go into a little bit of denial because that's a normal part of the grieving process. It's really hard to, like, stay in that state and then exist in the horse world and see just how often these things are occurring and not go immediately back to, like, what you learned research-wise. So these are just, like, some examples of, like, how prevalent the stress is. Like, the other thing that I want to say is that for making my social media posts, like, I go through a lot of, like, stock images and, like, stock image libraries because this is the easiest way for me to access photos of horses that I have permission to use. And... I have tried and I've tried and I've tried to find examples of like good, good, happy, relaxed horses in these stock image libraries and it's really, really hard to find. And a lot of the images of the horses in these libraries are at like mid to upper levels of competition. And even if they're in schooling, again, like it should in theory, especially at the lower levels, be easier to find photos of relaxed, happy horses than it actually is. And sorry, a bee just almost landed on me. I don't know if that was, like, change in volume, but um, then it actually is, and the other thing to consider is that there's certain riders that I can look at, and I can go, like, yeah, they ride really nicely, and they typically have far more relaxed horses, but since this is such a controversial topic, a lot of those riders don't want their photos to be used within the context that I would want to use them in, so I don't have permission to use them, and it becomes very, very hard to highlight the good examples when the bad examples are more freely available, and that aside, like, I think that the fact that there are so many bad examples is something that deserves immense discussion and posting about, like, all these bad examples and how to recognize it, because the fact of the matter is a lot of the horse world doesn't actually know how to tell the difference between a good and a bad example, because they're not properly reading the behavior. So a lot of people might pick out a horse that they think looks relaxed, but then when you show it to, like, a behavior specialist, they're probably going to notice signs of stress in that horse. And... Generally speaking, a lot of these horses have a pretty high degree of stress, and there's a lot of normalized behaviors in horses that we just shrug off as normal horse behavior when they're actually abnormal, atypical, stress-related behaviors. And that also needs to stop because we can't really help horses if we're in denial of, like, what their natural behavior is. And, like, what we do need to consider is that they're flight animals. Like, Energy expenditure is expensive to a flight animal because they need to maintain a certain level of energy to be able to flee from danger. So they don't really want to be causing problems and engaging in expensive behaviors unless they actually truly feel like they're in danger. Um, and play behaviors with horses are typically short-lived and far less frequent. 
And a lot of what we try to label as play is actually stressed or frustration related. And like stress and frustration aren't completely avoidable in training. Like stuff happens and like you can't operate at a level of such perfection that you never make a mistake that might cause something like that or that the environment never changes beyond your control and like incites a behavior like that. However, we do need to be discussing how we can limit stress and frustration as much as possible. And there's enough studies out now that show us viable means of doing so, but there's a lack of acceptance of said studies by the horse world as a whole. So anyways, that's kind of some background on like the problems that I see in the industry, because like, first of all, like one of the major things that I think needs to change is like the accessibility of really harsh, really highly painful or like with the ability to easily be abused equipment like how available it is and how you can just legally buy it and freely use it in schooling and also use it in a lot of competition rings and how desensitized people are to like the mechanics of such equipment and how they're willing to justify its use based on their horse's behavior and the unwanted behavior because they want the horse to do what they want they'll justify it based off of that but it's like okay but like even if you want the horse to do what you want is it really fair to cause them pain in order to get the response that you want like if this sport is really about the love of the horse why are we so comfortable with justifying using inherently painful equipment to get the result that we want and i personally am of the mind that a lot of the equipment that we see on the market for horses shouldn't be legal like we i don't think a a, a I don't think abrasive bits like twisted wire bits, double twisted wire bits and like bits that serve to like pinch and cause discomfort in the mouth should even be sold. I don't think that a lot of like the gag bit combinations should be sold. I don't think that a lot of like training aids should be sold. And I think that we need to start really reflecting on the legality of what equipment we justify with horses because if you compared the equipment that is freely used on horses to a lot of what like like dog training for example it wouldn't fly to put a dog in that level of deliberate discomfort just to get the response that you want and yes there's aversive and unfair dog equipment that is sold but it's not to the same extent as what we see in horse equipment like the amount that people are willing to like cause their horse pain and try to gag and restrict their movement and ability to escape said pain is insane. Like, it's not just the bits. It's like pairing the bits with all different types of nose bands, like rope nose bands, which are abrasive. So if the horse tries to open their mouth, it causes more discomfort. They're typically thinner, which localizes pressure. Um, all sorts of different types of flash nose bands and like flash nose band combinations, uh, like the spider nose band. Like, it's like literally like a figure eight with like a flash nose band to like effectively make it so the horse cannot cross their jaw or open their mouth at all. And all of these types of equipment are there to try to prevent any resistance or escape from the horse. So you could have a horse that has a harsh bit in its mouth and then has a noseband paired with that bit so they can't even open their mouth to escape from the growing pressure inside their mouth that causes the, them discomfort. And on top of that, they could be in a standing or running martingale, which then further restricts their movement when they try to lift their head to try to escape or like draw reins or something like that. Like there's so many different means of control that people freely use and comfortably use and want to use without criticism or any commentary on how it might actually impact the horse. And the lack of desire to have these discussions and how enraged people become when you talk about equipment and like question its fairness to the horse I think speaks for the fact that like people are highly defensive and I think that there is a certain level of guilt no matter how deeply they try to bury it 
that they're feeling that causes them to have these visceral reactions. Because if you truly don't believe you're doing anything wrong, you don't become enraged and go on like a vendetta witch hunt against someone who has said something that upset you. And a lot of people put like hours and hours and hours and days of their time or even years, honestly. Like I've had people that I pissed off like a few years ago that still routinely go out of their way just to trash talk me. And it's like, if you truly just think that I'm completely full of shit and that I don't know what I'm talking about and that I'm just stupid and useless or whatever and that I've never handled upper level horses and I can't talk, why are you letting what I say enrage you to such a degree? Because it's like the equivalent of like a toddler telling you an untrue fact. Like if you know that they're like stupid and like uneducated, like toddlers aren't stupid, but you know, like their their brain is less developed and they're they're silly, they're immature. Um, but if that's the way you feel about someone like me, like my words should be nothing. It should be like water off a duck's back. They should be completely meaningless to people, but they're not because I think there's a certain level of guilt and shame that these people have buried that they're not willing to accept. And when I say it, it like strikes a match that sets them aflame and gets a visceral response. And I speak this from experience for myself because I used to get that visceral response. And I used to get really, really angry when people said stuff that questioned the status quo and put me in a position where I was forced to come to terms with thinking thoughts that I did not want to think. And instead of looking inward and asking myself why I was having that response, I chose to redirect my anger at those people who forced me to think those things. And I would spend so much time trying to plead my case and prove to myself that I was right and get validation from like other people liking and commenting on my responses because I was insecure and I I didn't have faith in the way that I was doing things. And I think that speaks for a lot of the industry. Um, I've mentioned this a few times, but I'll go back to like briefly mention the fact that like Back in December, there was like a interview that Carl Cook did regarding Kalinka where he was talking about how afraid he was to ride her and how like like, he felt like his life was in danger every time he got on her. And he was joking. Like, I think it was, like, a lighthearted comment. Um, but to me, it was in very poor taste because I don't think that's the right type of thing we should be normalizing to the equestrian community. In addition to the fact that a lot of the behaviors that were making her hit like making him feel that way and that he d didn't feel safe on are like stress responses. They're like flight responses for horses. I can't speak for like why exactly she would be stressed, but if you look at the research we have on equine stress, like those aren't normal, happy, relaxed horse behaviors. And a lot of the studies that we've done on human perception of horse stress show that a lot of humans mislabel stress as excitement and happiness on the part of the horse because that's a more palatable descriptor. It's an easier to accept descriptor of the horse behavior. And that's what a lot of people at the upper levels do. But anyways, me commenting on that situation sparked something in him that caused him to make a response to me where I, I feel like he was very, very triggered and like upset and like angry with me. Even though in my response to him, I like, I re reiterated like how much I respected him and his riding because honestly, like as far as upper level riders go, I do think that he's probably one of the better ones because he tends to be softer and he, like, I do think he loves his horses, but I think that that interview that he did was misguided and I think that him along with many other upper level riders have a misguided perception of their horse's stress behavior because they're quickly labeling it as excitement. And I think that what we need to consider as humans is that like, that's an easy out for us to call it excitement and just say that the horse is happy. That's the easiest out. 
But in order to truly be the best advocates for our horses, we need to kind of look at all of the possibilities for why a behavior could exist and like seriously look at the science behind it and humble ourselves and keep ourselves accountable instead of just taking the easiest way out. And the reason why I'm bringing up this situation is because I found it particularly interesting. Like, in comparison to him, I am a nobody in the horse world. I don't compete at that level. I don't come from the same amount of money. My horses aren't as expensive. They're not as nice. I don't have the same level of, like, awards that I've won at the upper levels. I don't garner the same amount of respect. I don't have the same platform as him. And yet, my words really triggered him in a way that I wasn't expecting because I honestly thought he wasn't even going to respond to me. And he's not the first upper level rider that I've had have that sort of reaction to stuff that I've posted. And I find that interesting because again, like in comparison to them, I am a nobody in the horse world. Like I don't garner the same level of respect and elite perception from the horse world. I don't go to the Olympics. I don't compete in Grand Prix. Like, I, I'm not from the same lifestyle as them. And yet, my words are so impactful to them to the point where it, like, enrages them. And I think that that response from so many different people in the horse world is something that we should explore because if we're that triggered by discussion of welfare and, like, talking about horse stress and the presence of it, there's a reason for it. Like, if we truly, truly at our... It, at the core of our hearts, believed that horses were largely unstressed and that the behaviors we were seeing were simply just excitement and that there is no validity to it, it really shouldn't elicit that type of response because you would have such a confidence in what you were doing that other people wouldn't be able to rock that confidence with their words. But the reason why you can rock people's confidence with your words and by sharing scientific studies and referencing studies on horse stress is because there is validity to it and it's provable like there there's tons of studies that i could cite right now pertaining to horse stress both ridden and on the ground that would basically clearly outline a lot of behaviors we see in the competition ring like sue dyson's ridden pain um ethogram is a really good example of this like a lot of the behaviors in that ethogram are ones that people would regard as completely normal behaviors. And yes, like some of them without the context of being in tandem with other behaviors, like I think if the horses show eight or more behaviors on the ethogram, they're at high likelihood of musculoskeletal pain. With that said, some horses had indicators of musculoskeletal pain with less than eight behaviors. But what I'm saying is like the presence of like one of those behaviors doesn't necessarily mean your horse is in pain. But what I would say is that it increases the likelihood that at least they're stressed. Like, the stress could be pain-related, it could be emotional, it could be environmentally induced or whatever. But we have this evidence that displays a lot of behaviors that horse people want to regard as normal and links them to some level of stress, be it, like, from pain or whatever. And the research is there, and it's continuing to be replicated over time despite the lack of funding and the lack of people wanting to participate in this research or, like, give it the like, eyes that it needs on it to be properly understood. Like, these studies don't get shared enough, they don't get discussed enough, they might blow up initially, but then they're quickly forgotten, and people are very quick to make excuses for why the study's findings might apply to their horses. And they're very quick to be like, oh, I know my horse. Or people will use the excuse, you don't know my horse, you can't talk, you don't know my horse. But it's like, there's no evidence that, like, from horse to horse, that there's huge differences, which is why these types of studies that have def like defined these ethograms usually have pretty large sample sizes and 
currently we don't have evidence that like horses deviate from that norm so immensely that they'll display behaviors that are specific to them that are not stress related. A lot of the abnormal behaviors we see in horses are stress related or induced by like the stress of an environment or not being able to meet species specific needs and they're a horse's means of coping with the stress that they're under. Um, so it, it, it's a really difficult conversation to have and I understand that but I think that we need to start getting comfortable with having it because if we're truly like out there to do the best we can for our horses this is something that needs to happen like and like as a trainer myself like there's sessions where I've had that like my horses are clearly like frustrated and then I have to reflect on why that is and make needed changes and try to improve on it rather than continuing to go about doing things the way I was and potentially worsen that response. It's not like my horses are always completely devoid of stress or frustration. Sometimes that comes into training, but the way that I respond to it now is inherently different than how I used to because I take their communication at face value and I start to ask myself like why is this occurring and how can I make it happen less because that's necessary in order for me to continue holding myself accountable and improving my training as a craft it makes me a better trainer it helps me identify potential lameness issues before they spiral out of control and it's helped me resolve behavioral problems long term because I start to take my horse's communication seriously and it's something that's so necessary like it can just be as simple as like monitoring how often your horse is doing something and really working to lessen the prevalence of it. It doesn't always necessarily mean like, oh, you need to immediately seize riding and get, get a full body MRI scan on your horse to determine that there's absolutely no pain anywhere. But it's like when your horse starts to display abnormal behaviors, you should either first bring back your work or discover what the stimulus eliciting that response is. And if it's potentially pain related, like explore that. It doesn't mean you immediately need to spend thousands and thousands of dollars on veterinary diagnostics, but like it might mean that you might want to do a baseline level lameness exam or at the very least bring your horse back to more simplistic work and do some groundwork and stretching to help them sort that out and go from there. And no one's perfect. Like we all make mistakes and there's things that we might overlook or not see, but like in order to get better at being able to see these things, we need to hold ourselves to a certain degree of accountability and be open to listening to the scientific advancements that we have on horse behavior and communication. And that is how we'll make needed change in the industry. So in terms of what I would like to see change in the competitive industry, like I mentioned, I think that a lot of the products that we see on the market for horse training, there's many of them that should not ethically exist, that they have no ethical basis, that they can't be used ethically because at, at their core, they're about increasing the level of discomfort we cause horses to muscle them around and make them do things when they are engaging in behaviors that are escape behaviors and trying to not do what we ask. It's about increasing the level of pain and discomfort so that we can make them do something anyways, rather than getting to the source of the problem and addressing that. It's about a quick fix. It's about a band-aid fix. And if we're doing stuff like that, where we can muscle horses about and force them to do things that they otherwise do not want to do, we can end up creating lameness because their their lack of desire to want to do what we're asking is like their first defense against lameness. And if we override that by causing them enough pain that they just decide to go about doing what we ask anyways or causing them enough stress and discomfort that they just do it anyways, then we take away one of their main forms of protection against themselves, which is like saying, hey, like I can't do this. And it doesn't really give us an accurate outlook on like how physically capable they are if we're just muscling them around. Like, um, 
even with things like draw reins or like harsh bits to try to get horses into like a quote unquote frame. Like self-carriage is called self-carriage for a reason. Like the horse has to choose to engage in it. And when you try to force it through like a pulley system like draw reins or increasing the amount of pressure in their mouth with like a gag bit or like an abrasive mouthpiece, there's going to be a certain amount of tension involved with that when the only reason they're going into such position is because they have no real other choice because the level of pressure and discomfort will increase if they don't do it. On on top of that, it's not really going to build the same level of muscles because, again, like they're not freely and willingly doing it. You're manufacturing a response by using equipment that doesn't really allow for any other option. Um and with draw reins in particular, like no matter where you clip them and rig them on the horse, they're pulling the horse's nose down and in, which naturally the direction that they're going is behind the vertical rather than pushing their nose forward and stretching forward and like seeking contact and seeking a forward feel. They're getting pulled the opposite way, which will naturally teach them to kind of defer to going behind the vertical and like duck in and like drop their pull and not be having their pull at the highest point. And it might get you a look that you want faster, but it's not being achieved in the same quality as what it would be if you teach the horse to kind of figure out how to get there on their own. And this is why I find the, the horse world's like um, lack of acceptance of positive reinforcement training so interesting because like target training, for example, is a great way to teach your horse exactly where you want their headset to be and to create a relaxed headset and to really show the horse exactly where you want their head and neck to be and create a willing self-carriage where they're like reaching forward for something rather than succumbing to the pressure of something and ducking behind. And even if you use draw reins really lightly and you're not pulling them right behind the vertical, the direction of the pressure is still asking them to go down and in. It's not asking them to seek the forward contact. Um, it's pulling them in the wrong direction and it's naturally going to create a certain level of tension and resistance. But so the equipment is one thing. The other stuff is like over tightening nose bands, like and flash nose bands in general. People will flippantly do stuff like this without actually considering how it impacts the horse. There's studies showing that like over tightened nose bands actually can create lesions in the nasal bones and create dents in the horse's face. Like it can actually cause the bone to disintegrate and create lesions in the horse's face. Um, and again, like that, like even if you think you can fit like a finger or whatever under the noseband or you're like te- checking it at the side of the noseband rather than the top or the bottom. First of all, when you're checking the fit of the noseband, it has to be at the top or the bottom because the even a, a really tight noseband, you can usually fit your fingers at the side, even if it's like exorbitantly tight. Um, but that aside, like we don't really consider it because we just do it because we don't want the horse to open their mouth, but we don't consider like the pressure that they're creating anytime they try to open their jaw anyways, or that the pressure of the tight noseband might be creating on its own just by pushing down on their face and the level of discomfort that may cause. And similarly with flash nosebands, a lot of people over tighten them to the point where the horse cannot open their jaw and open their teeth at all. And again, like chewing lots and gaping the mouth are an indicator of some level of discomfort and lack of acceptance of the contact and slapping a flash on it is not going to make them more comfortable accepting that contact. It's just going to mask the fact that their mouth is opening and closing and it's not going to allow the horse the same level of comfort to try to relieve bit pressure if they need to. It's a band-aid fix at best and it's coming at the expense of the horse's comfort. Like even when they're properly fitted, at their core, they 
don't allow the horse to open their mouth to the same degree. And like, what this is the thing is like a lot of these items we see on the market are about quick fixes and like fixating on the problem that we see and wanting to suppress the horse's ability to engage in whatever the problem behavior is rather than questioning why that problem exists. Like why is our horse grinding and twisting their jaw and gaping their mouth and constantly chewing on the bit and never settling in the mouth. Why are they doing that? Could it be anxiety related? Is the bit uncomfortable? Is there something related to like the fit of their saddle or bridle that could be adjusted? The flash or like tight oh, tightening the nose band too much or whatever, all that does is fixate on like I don't like this problem and I don't want it to exist and just tries to suppress the behavior on the part of the horse rather than looking inward and going, I wonder why the horse is doing this because there's a reason underlying every type of behavior and you can teach a quiet mouth even with a bit in the mouth by creating further relaxation and allowing the horse to develop a soft response to AIDS and like when horses get strong and you need to half halt them and they open their mouth like that's their way of trying to alleviate pressure in the mouth and should we really be trying to prevent that because then we're preventing their natural ability to defend themselves from discomfort and if we're going to use bits is it really fair to gag them to that extent and these are just like all things that need to be considered. The other thing is like the show jumping ring, for example, has virtually no regulations in terms of what bits are not allowed to be used. Like you can put virtually whatever you want in your horse's mouth, pair it with whatever nose band you want and just go in there. And in my opinion, like especially at the upper levels, it's like you don't need to be in the Grand Prix arena if you cannot get there without using an exceptionally harsh bit. Like, if that's the equipment that you are required to use in order to pilot your horse safely around that level, you don't deserve to be in that arena. I'm sorry. There's a better way of achieving it, and if the riders are not currently capable of doing so, then they need to go back to basics and learn a better, more ethical way of doing so. The answer is not making it the horse's problem to put up with an insane level of discomfort just so the rider can pilot them around a meter 60 course and enjoy the limelight. That's not the answer. It's not the horse's responsibility to put up with rider incompetence. It's the rider's responsibility to reflect, look inward, and become more competent and become more ethical and consider why their horse is having the struggles and problems that they are. Because again, it comes back to injury as well. If the only way you can safely pilot a horse around a course is by causing them pain, do you really think they're going to be using their body safely? And do you really think they're going to be tension and stress-free? And do you really think they're going to be able to protect their body in the same way that they could with like being calm and like comfortable and like in lighter tack? No, because at default, the reason why people select harsher pieces of equipment is because the horse is less controllable without them and they require harsh equipment in order to get control. So then you're using it in place of like addressing why the horse is lacking in control and why they're so weak that they're bolting defenses or why they're so stressed they're bolting defenses. And it's putting a band-aid on the problem and it's going to predispose the horse to some level of injury. And this comes back to like muscular development and stuff as well because a lot of the horses you see at the upper levels even insanely fit horses like in eventing they have muscular dysfunction like they're not properly muscled there's a lot of horses who have huge dips behind the withers who are lacking in top line and who have underdeveloped necks that have an overdeveloped under neck and then have like a hole right after the wither where there's underdeveloped muscle and it's an indicator that they're not using their bodies correctly if you then take them and compete them at the pinnacle of the sport when their bodies are not 
muscled in the way that they need to be to actually do it safely and healthily and protect their body and help their body work in a way that would prevent injury, then you're making it more likely to prevent injury. Um, AB Equine Therapy on Facebook and Instagram did a post on this where she posted different photos of upper level event horses in the jogs. And it's a great post. I recommend going to look at that so you can see what I'm talking about because she goes into more detail on that. And it's true. And it's like at the pinnacle of the sport, we should not be seeing that. Because there are riders who condition their horses really well and who ride them properly and whose horses do not have those problems. So we can already see that it is possible to do because there are riders that are doing it well, but there's also far too many that aren't. And we've accepted a standard that is not acceptable, especially at that level. Like there's room for more error at the lower levels because people are still learning. But at the pinnacle of the sport, it shouldn't be a situation where we're seeing such a huge margin of error with these people who are supposed to be the best of the best of the best. And equipment is like a huge problem in the industry. Um, another thing that I want to point out too is that like when we're using over-tightened nose bands and uncomfortable bits and like heavy-handed riding, and then you'd also do something like where you put like a spur on, but you have like a big bit on your horse. Once again, you're trapping them between like a rock and a hard place because you're going to spur them. They're going to run forward into the bridle to move off of the spur. And then they're hitting a harsh bit and being asked to be brought back or like when they lift their head, to because of the discomfort then they're hitting a martingale or something like it's like gagging the horse in so many different ways like you're effectively putting them in a straight jacket with like a ball gag in their mouth um so that they can basically have no behavioral response to the level of stress and discomfort that they're under because people are so desperate to eradicate these stress behaviors at any cost that they're willing to put on whatever they can to make it happen and an upper level dressage too like the fact that double bridle bridles are compulsory past a certain level and so are spurs why why are we making harsher equipment compulsory but not allowing for bitless riding at the lower levels? And, like, people will go, like, oh, like, you have to be on the bit for dressage. Um, you can't ride bitless because of that. That is an issue of terminology. You could change the terminology because on the bit is referencing connection, the horse's connection to their the rider, their acceptance of contact, being on the aids and being responsive. You could just change it to connection, being on the aids, being on the bridle instead of bit. And that aside, it's like, why do we care so much if people want to ride bitless if you truly think that it'll put them at a disadvantage? Because most of the people who say that you bitless shouldn't exist in dressage will claim that it would be like dis it would be a disadvantage because horses won't perform as well. If that's the case, why do you care? Because you're not going to be the one doing it. Why do you care if someone else does? Why are you trying to police people that you think are going to be at an inherent disadvantage? Does that not just give you more people to beat if that actually feels true to you? And then the spur thing too, it's like, if a rider has a really sensitive horse who does not like the spur, they should not have to wear them. And, like, apparently you can put on a bumper spur or, like, a false spur, but it's like, why? Like, why not just say you can wear spurs if you want or you can choose to take them off? Why do people have to be in a situation where they basically have to put on a fake spur to follow the rules when the rules don't need to be like that and people are like oh like spurs are for precision and it's like okay there's other ways to teach precise aids you don't need to use spurs and if a rider does not want to again if you think it'll cause them to have a lack of precision that would be a disadvantage and why do you care if someone chooses to disadvantage themselves like, why do we care about that? If all of these things are a perceived advantage and they allow more precise communication and have a perceived benefit in the show ring, why do we care if certain types of riders choose to willfully disadvantage 
each other th- themselves. And I'm going to use air air quotes around disadvantage. I don't personally believe it's a disadvantage. I think that these are made up justifications that people use to justify the status quo and the equipment used without actually self reflecting on why the equipment exists and like like it's mostly tradition based like i don't actually believe that these arguments are true but let's pretend that they are and go like why do these people care if other riders willingly disadvantage themselves why does it matter because that won't impact them whatsoever but i think that deep down these people are worried that people will prove that they can do these things with less equipment and that it'll make them look bad and if that's not the case then it's like prove us wrong allow people to disadvantage themselves if you're not worried about it reflecting poorly on you let them do it let them. And there's just like so many different things. There needs to be more equipment checks at the upper levels. Like there needs to be more stewards around to watch people in the barns and in the warm-up rings that are doing sketchy things. Cause there's a lot of stuff that happens that's completely illegal as per FEI rules that still occurs because people once again are taking shortcuts. People will put shards of ice in their horse's jumping boots so that if they hit a pole, it'll cause them pain or more pain, but then the ice will melt and it's not going to be detectable if they do a boot check when they go in. Some people will even do stuff like putting little tacks or other types of abrasive materials that they'll then later remove. In the hunter ring, you can buy nosebands that have tacks on the underside of them because you can't use a flash in the hunter hunter ring, so if you over-tighten your noseband and put a tacked noseband on, anytime your horse tries to open their mouth, they're going to hit those tacks and then they're not going to want to open their mouth. And that's a hard thing to detect. And I don't think there's actually any rules against using them. Someone can correct me if they're wrong. But that aside, if there are, they're not being enforced well enough because people are still using them. And then also in the hunter ring, like, yeah, they recommend using a snaffle. Technically, you're allowed to use a pelham, but um, there's trends. And, like, right now, snaffles are trending. So it's like, okay, yeah, you're allowed to use a snaffle. But, like, a snaffle doesn't mean that it's necessarily a soft bit. Like, look up the Peter Pletcher bit. That bit is disgusting. It is so thin. There's so many pinch points. There, it, it isolates pressure to an insane degree. It's basically like putting a cheese grater in your horse's mouth or like a cheese knife, like a wire cheese knife. And yes, the horse is going to be soft and really responsive in it because if they're not, it's going to cut their mouth up. It's going to cause them so much discomfort and pain. They don't really have a choice other than to be responsive. And that's also allowed in the arena. And Again, it's like we need to look at these things and go, okay, if the sport is actually about the horse, why are we allowing these pieces of equipment that have so much potential to cause harm? Let's pretend that you can use a Peter Pletcher bit ethically or other bits like that, which I don't think you can because their nature by default, anytime you're applying contact and even at rest in the horse's mouth, they're not going to be comfortable because they're made to cause discomfort to get a certain result. Um, But let's pretend you can use them ethically. What percentage of people do you actually think are going to be finessed enough to use these things ethically? And is that percentage high enough that you think we should justify use of these equipment? If in theory, if riders are good enough riders, they should be able to do with less. Because honestly, like, I don't think any rider is finessed enough to use it ethically. And if if a rider exists that is, they shouldn't need to take those shortcuts to use a piece of equipment like that. I've said this before, but soft hands do not seek weapons. As soon as you decide to weaponize your hands by choosing a bit that has mechanics that make it inherently more aggressive, your hands are no longer soft. You might feel like you're being softer because you need to apply less pressure to get a response, but that's because you've chosen to amplify how your the pressure of your hands feels to the horse by choosing a harsher bit, which means you've weaponized your hands. Your hands are no longer soft. Soft hands do not seek weapons. They don't want to even have the potential to cause 
discomfort and damage to the horse. And riders who choose to use harsh equipment do not have soft hands. They've made the express choice to not have soft hands. If you want to have soft hands, use soft equipment. People will go like, oh, well, if I ride in like a snaffle, I have to pull so hard on my horse. It's like, you might have to right now, but clearly that means you have work to do to soften your horse in like groundwork and flat work to make their mouth less dull. The answer isn't getting a bit that increases the amount of pressure feel your hands give to them to get a quicker response. That's not solving the issue. It's slapping a band-aid on so that you can feel like you're being softer because your hands don't have to pull as hard, but you haven't actually fixed the problem. And I hate that logic because it's also implying that there's no other way to fix a horse that is lacking in responsiveness other than to put a harsher piece of equipment in their mouth. Don't be lazy. Go back to dressage lessons. Go back to flat work. Get your horse soft in soft equipment and get them on the aids and refined in their their performance there and then go back to doing the more difficult stuff like jumping. Get them really solid on the flat first and then go back to the stuff as jumping. But let's be real. The reason why people want to take these shortcuts is because they don't want to put the time in. They don't want to go back to the basics. They want to keep continuing on at a fast rate to do what they find to be more fun or more fulfilling, even if it comes at the expense of their horse. And this is what is wrong with the industry. We shouldn't be in such a rush to get somewhere that we're willing to harm our horses to get there. And there's so many factors that are in place that enable this type of behavior and encourage it. Um, And trainers are also encouraged to do this because in order to make money, especially if you're like mostly appealing to a competitive clientele, you do need to take shortcuts because otherwise your clients are going to lose interest and they're just going to move to a trainer who will let them take shortcuts and then you might not be able to pay your bills. So I think a lot of people feel trapped in this and the only way to help untrap them is by setting a standard that promotes good welfare at its core and doesn't allow for people to get such benefit from using problematic practices. If you can no longer win if you're using shortcuts and you have a stressed horse who is in pain, you'll pretty quickly change the way you go about doing things. It's not going to be advantageous to take those shortcuts if you're held to a higher standard. And so that's why we need to change how we how we judge disciplines and make welfare part of like how people are scored. Like if a horse is displaying a number of stress behaviors, they shouldn't be scored well. Or in sports like show jumping, where it's not score based and it's like time based and like fault based, then we need to set equipment rules that make it harder for riders to abuse equipment or buzz them out if there's a horse who is displaying excessive stress signals and is looking uncomfortable. Like there's lots that can be done to make the sport more fair to the horse. It's just a matter of if we choose to do it or not. I think that the sport can improve and I think that we can make it a welfare-based sport where welfare is factored into people's success in the sport, but it is not currently that. So people can be highly successful while being really, really unethical. And it's not even necessarily going to be stuff that you see at shows. Behind the scenes too, there's a lot of unethical stuff that goes on in schooling. And again, When welfare isn't factored in and when we're so used to ignoring horse pain and stress signals, there's not really incentive for people to change that because they're getting rewarded for it in the show ring. And in order to stop them from doing that, we need to take away the reward. We need to make it less reinforcing for them to engage in those shortcuts. And we need to give them incentive to adopt new practices by mandating welfare. Rule books like USEF, Equestrian Canada, and the FEI rulebook will all state that horse welfare is paramount and they do not stand by abusive practices to horses. But their rules do not actually enforce that. They don't actually do anything to practice what they preach and ensure that they're promoting good welfare because if they did, we wouldn't see these problems occurring in the rates that they do. 
So it's all virtue signaling as far as I'm concerned because these competitive show organizations will talk the talk, but they're not walking the walk. They're not holding people properly accountable. On top of that, like depending on who you train with and like what your name is, you're going to be held less, less, less accountable for things than someone without the name attached to it. You're going to get away with more stuff. And we see this happening a lot in the horse industry. People are more willing to turn a blind eye to an upper level rider doing something that is unbecoming or like completely abusive to the horse. Than they are if it's like a lower level like junior rider or like someone who doesn't have the same name like a lot of the stuff that we see people defending upper level riders for if you posted an average joe doing it they would get absolutely just taken apart online like they wouldn't be meeting the same level of defensiveness and they wouldn't be getting like oh like it was just a moment in time or like oh like you can't like like some people make mistakes or like oh it's not that bad but it depends on like what your name is. People are more willing to defend certain types of certain types of abuses depending on who commits them. And that's also a problem because this is the thing is like I don't think that people are like completely like like that if you do something bad that you're completely just a write off of a human being. I do believe that people can grow and change because like I did a lot of cruel things to my horses for many years and I don't think the fact that I engaged in that means that I was just a write off as a person and I could never change because I really do think I've put work into doing that. So I like to be open to the idea that other people can do the same. But with that said, like if there's no accountability and they're not willing to hold themselves accountable and there's no self-reflection, the likelihood of them actually making needed changes are really, really slim because they're not going to be held accountable. Like they don't have to be held accountable. People are willing to defend the behavior and shrug it off. So then they don't need to self-reflect and look inward and consider ways that they could adapt and change for the better. And in order to make that happen, we need to walk the walk. Like competition rules need to change. We need to hold people more accountable. We need to set higher standards for welfare. And we need to actually show that we love the horse more than the sport by practicing what we preach all the time and actually putting the horse first because the equipment that we see sold, the practices we see justified, and what is enabled in competition is all very clear evidence that the horse is not put first because if they were we wouldn't be able to justify a lot of what we see going on in the industry. So what I see now is a lot of people in denial, completely denying what it is that they're actually doing and what their actions actually say and how what they do impacts their horse. And they're doing so for their own comfort at the expense of their horse's well-being. And in doing that, they cannot be held accountable because they're pretending that what they're doing is not harmful. They're pretending that what they're doing isn't damaging to the horse. They're shrugging it off or they're just not even acknowledging the fact that it's a problem. And they're getting hyper-defensive and calling it bullying when people point out that certain practices aren't necessarily fair to the horse. Even though a lot of how we train horses is reliant on essentially bullying the horse through utilizing varying amounts of discomfort or pain to garner a certain response. But when you try to hold people accountable for that and try to educate, then you're labeled as a bully because you're making it uncomfortable for people to exist in the horse world as it currently is. And you're saying things that they don't want to hear. But then at the same time, they're not willing to self-reflect on how what they do in their barns might feel like bullying to their horses or how the way a lot of instructors speak to their students might feel like bullying to their students. And it's just, it's exhausting. So 
I don't want to see the sport fall apart, but at the same time, it's like if we don't make needed changes and we're actually going to commit to tradition to this extent and refuse to change, then I do want to see the sport fall apart. We don't deserve to continue having this sport if we're not going to respect the horses who make the sport possible. And we're currently not respecting them on an industry-wide scale because we're not valuing their communication. We're trying to gag their communication. We're punishing them for their communication. And we're enabling the use of equipment and training practices that we know cause harm. And enough is enough. And if we're not willing to change that, then no, we don't deserve to have competition because we're not wanting to conduct ourselves in a way that is deserving of the absolute kindness and, like, forgiveness that horses show us. And, like, in order to actually do horses justice, we really need to put the work in on ourselves to make needed changes because they're such kind, benevolent creatures who really don't want to cause problems. And a lot of the aggression and safety issues we see in horses are created by us as humans with what we justify. We don't deserve horses unless we're going to protect them and self-reflect and do the hard work that is changing the way we go about things for the benefit of our horses. And we can do so much better. We really, really can. And I know that most people are capable of it. And I know that once the changes are put into place that like, it might be a difficult transition initially, but it's going to end up being for the better for everyone else. Because if you have happy horses who are less stressed and aren't in as much of pain, they're going to be way more willing to work for us. So enough is enough. Like, please help me make these changes and like, please help spread the word of the welfare movement. I just co-founded an organization called the Alliance for Horse Welfare and Sport. We're starting with the Paris 2024 Olympics because that is when the horse world is under the biggest microscope. And as I'm sure many of you know, the Tokyo Olympics were an absolute shit show when it came to horse welfare. So we're starting with the Paris Olympics because that'll give us the most um, like publicity and also like the biggest limelight to the horse sport to get the level of um, advocacy and like people joining the movement as what we need to start pushing for more changes across the entire industry. But once we do that, the goal is to start going to other aspects of the horse industry to make changes like with like all different like English horse sports, Western horse sports, horse racing, like everything. Like the goal is to try to set standards to improve the welfare of horses industry wide. But the reason why we're starting with the Paris Olympics is because it's coming up next year. And it's going to give us the platform that we need to hopefully make these changes. Because like I said at the beginning of this, the horse world is a multi-billion dollar industry. There's a lot of money involved. The people who are at the top of the sport have a lot of money to try to silence the media coverage for organizations such as this one and to try to put out like propaganda to try to like silence it and like virtue signal by saying that they're doing things for welfare, that they're starting to make like these welfare task forces like the FBI did. But it hasn't been put into place yet and they haven't announced when it's going to be put into place. So it's like, until it actually happens, it's just words. They've had it in their rule book for years that welfare is paramount and they haven't proven that. So there's going to be measures put into place by these really, really rich, powerful organizations to try to like shrug off the amount of problems there are in the industry or like bury them. So in order to get the level of like support and backing that we need, we need everyone to kind of help with this movement. We need it to leave the horse world. We need it to get into like the dog world, the everyday person. We need to help people really get involved with wanting to improve this for the better. And that's why the Olympics are such a good place to start because it puts so many eyes on the horse world. But this is not something we can do alone. So I'm going to leave the petition at the link in the description of this podcast. You can look up the Alliance for Horse Welfare and Sport on Facebook or we're Unite for Horses on um, we're Unite for Horses on Instagram or on 
TikTok, we're Alliance for Horse Welfare. And we have a petition, and then we also have a campaign magazine that lists off all 46 welfare recommendations that we're making for the Paris 2024 Olympics. And we're hoping to get the Olympic Committee to adopt it, and then we're going to turn to FEI to try to get FEI to adopt some of these welfare recommendations. And honestly, like, even just getting a few of them done is a great start. But, like, in order to be taken seriously, we need, like, hundreds of thousands of signatures at minimum. Like, our goal is a million signatures, but we need, like, as many as we can get. So I cannot stress enough just how much help we're going to need and how much, like, sharing and spreading the word, liking and commenting on posts, sending it to your friends, getting your friends to share it, even if they're not horse people. Like, we need to reach the outside of the horse world in order for this to actually work and happen. It cannot just be horse people, because so many horse people are committed to silencing these types of discussions and not wanting to participate in them. So we simply do not have the volume of horse people to actually put this movement off of its feet and start building traction. We need people on the outside who love and care about animals to help us. And if anyone knows of like celebrities or people who are prominent figures in the community that have a platform and have the ability to help reach that love horses or love animals in general, especially if you know them well enough that they might be able to consider what you say, please reach out to them and just help us spread the word. Um, we really just need as much eyes on this camp, as many eyes on this campaign as possible to help get this out there and to help get the traction that we need to actually make this bring positive change to the industry. And I'm hoping that if we are able to make these changes, that it'll paint horse people in a better light across the world. Because a lot of people outside of the horse world just think that we'd like break horses' spirits and that horseback riding is inherently exploitative and unfair to the horse. And like, I would agree with them that that happens far too much, but there are better ways of doing things. And I would like to see the better examples more highlighted and encouraged in competition um, so that people are seeing like the best of the best, especially at the upper levels of the sport. So please help out by joining the equine welfare movement, share, 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 put the word out as much as possible. And just like do whatever you can to help us build traction. Cause we really, really need voices for this. Um, Sorry if you can hear the tractor in the background. That's really loud. My window's open, but I'm nearing the end of this podcast, so I'm not going to close it at this point. But anyways, for anyone who's el- who else is who... I cannot talk today. Sorry. For anyone else who is interested in helping to support me in my work, I have a Patreon channel where you can access all sorts of different tutorials on how to start positive reinforcement in addition to all things equine behavior and equine sciences, and that's patreon.com slash s-d-e-q-u-u-s patreon.com slash s-d-equus that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash s-d-equus I'll also link that in the description of the podcast. I also have a product line with equestrian apparel and horse bridles called shop milestone you can go to shopmilestoneq.com and you can shop our sales section it's an extra 25% off of all clearance extra 30% off of all of our dallas multi bridles extra 25% off of pogo bridles and yeah that also helps me support my career and just kind of continue doing what i'm doing i'm planning on going to paris to speak at a horse welfare conference for this movement in september so i'm also doing some fundraising efforts for that which i'll also link below i'm doing mini behavioral consults where i offer hour-long behavioral consults that you can also look at on my website and all the proceeds for those are going to go towards saving to make that trip possible for me um and patreon also helps with that as well you can check all of that out at the links down below or you can go to paypal.me slash milestone equestrian for a one-time donation if you don't want to subscribe to patreon and i'm also offering like website ad spots on my site um or shout outs on facebook or instagram for anyone who's interested for like paid donation spots 
Um, so you can also message me or email me about that to do that if you want to help out and also get like a shout out for your business. I get a lot of traffic on my pages, so hopefully it would be like a mutually beneficial experience for everyone involved. But yeah, that's kind of the plan um, and what I'm looking forward to doing going forward. So thank you again to everyone who supports me, everyone who listens to these podcasts, who shares my posts, who likes my posts, who comments on my posts, and who has believed in me um, at all, honestly, because I just, I really want to make positive changes and I just feel so bad for the horses and I just want to improve their welfare because like I put a lot of years into harming my horses, largely unintentionally, just because what was normalized and what I was enabled in doing. But with that said, like, I do feel like the best way that I can, like, give back to horses and apologize and make amends for what I have done is by trying to push for sweeping change industry-wide so people aren't taught to hurt horses in the way that I was for as many years as I was. We can do so much better. We really can. And it just starts with having this discussion and getting more eyes on this discussion and just putting the work in to really talk about how we can go about making good changes to benefit horses industry-wide welfare-wise um so anyways check all that out at the link in the description and please consider joining the welfare movement because it is just so needed and thank you again for listening to all of this and i really appreciate everyone who supports this podcast and my work in general